We would like to first acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional gathering grounds for many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hello, and welcome back to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast. I'm Dylan Cave, and I'm here, as always, with Brittany Eklund. Joining us today in the studio is Dr. Katie Bittner. She's an assistant professor of anthropology at McEwen University. Her research focuses broadly on technology, and for the last 15 years, she's been looking at Stone Age and contemporary technologies. However, she's more recently set her eyes on a far more modern subject. Yes, video games and the emerging field of archaeo gaming. We're so excited um, to talk to you today, Katie. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, well, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be part of this uh, this new podcast. As soon as I read Atari, I, I, <laughs> I was like, I'm in. <laughs> so like what, what first attracted you to the field of anthropology? Why choose to be an anthropologist? Well, I, I didn't originally plan to be an anthropologist. I wanted to be an astronaut or a cardiologist. Amazing. Um, Does anyone it, yeah. actually just like start that way? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> actually, most people don't even end up knowing out of high school that they want to go into anthropology. And I was one of the few, I think, rare exceptions of that. I was exposed very young to the idea of archaeology and anthropology. My uh, maternal grandfather, my papa, was a big influence in my life, uh, always making sure I had National Geographic as a kid. That was like my Christmas gift every year was a subscription. We used to watch old Nova specials on PBS. And then as I went through school and started to explore different options, it was actually my drama teacher, um, uh, who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, but Agrell, who taught out of Harry Ainley High School here in Edmonton. Uh, he was the one who was like, you, you know, you seem really interested in peoples and places and the past and, you know, cross-cultural comparison. Have you thought about anthropology? And I was like, well, I didn't think that was something a girl from, you know, Edmonton could do. And he was like, have you even looked at what we offer at our universities here? And so then I did. And realized, oh, yeah, that is exactly what I want to do. And it, the rest just kind of fell into place. There. Yeah. I mean, like my favorite. Or you lined it up yourself. Yeah. yeah. My favorite anthropologist growing up like was Indiana Jones, yeah. which is, I mean, he was a professor. He was an anthropologist, problematic anthropologist, I think. Um, yeah. But as for this, I think there is a romanticization. Is that a word? Romanticization? Romanticism it's romanticized. Romanticized. Yeah. yeah. Anthropology is these like, you know, you've got the hat and you're on the dig and you're digging mm -hmm. up like treasures. What is being an anthropologist actually like? <laughs> yeah, that's the the question I get all the time. Cause you're right, pop culture representations, especially good old Dr. Indiana Jones, right? That's the kind of go-to point that most people have in terms of what archaeology and what anthropology looks like. Um, but yeah, we wear the big hat. I always tell my students, of course, that's because it keeps the sun off our necks when we're excavating, right? <laughs> keeps us nice and safe. Um, you know, we we wear the the big comfy clothes because, again, it's all about keeping cool in the field while you're doing the work. And yes, while we're excavating, uh, this notion of treasure is problematic. <laughs> so there's that. But yeah, it's it's uh, very little of it is actually excavation is what I tell people. That's usually what they're surprised to hear, that the majority of our time looks more like what you would expect from the other side of things, which is we're either in the classroom which we see a little bit of Dr. Jones do, um, or we're we're in the the our research spaces where we're preparing for grant applications and project proposals. And uh, if we are fortunate enough to do the field work where we're excavating and recovering evidence of of past behavior, it's the analysis is the big part on the end because that's where we really get to the people, 
right? Yes, the stuff is great. It's exciting. It's interesting, but it's what it tells us about people in the past. that's really important. So the majority of our work is spent, you know, looking at um, the attributes that what we find has, describing those things, and then starting to put them into our, our framework so we can come up with interpretive models to get at what people are actually doing. Yeah, I think anthropology yeah. is such an important field because mm -hmm. obviously understanding the past is paramount to being able to understand ourselves, but also like predict the future, which again, very important to be able to anticipate what we may need. Um, and yeah, I am a communications person, but the favorite, like my favorite class I've ever, ever, ever taken was medical anthropology. Yeah. And it was just so fascinating to look at, like we are presented this very like unitarian, what do you say? Like one what are you looking at me I'm gonna for? Edit this out. <laughs> um, no, like uh, so, like the other side of that, um, you know, the 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 thing that most people think of the Indiana Jones of it all, and mm -hmm. and the the exciting part of the dig, like like uh, Brittany was saying. Um, but what about teaching? Like, w what made you become a teacher? And and like, what was the experience been like for you teaching this? Like, it seems like such a practical thing mm -hmm. how do you then theorize and, and do all do everything around that that's a, that's that's a great question I mean all your questions are great um <laughs> but this one yeah so the teaching part of thing how I'll answer the first part first about how I ended up in teaching so when I was doing my undergraduate degree I was fortunate enough to actually get hired on as a consulting archaeologist in an industry we call cultural resource management so this is the archaeology that a lot of people get employment in uh, because any development projects that occur um, here in Alberta, for example, and, and most of Canada require an archaeological impact assessment. So I was fortunate enough to get hired on with one of these companies and spend my summers doing field work and doing it on behalf of our uh, industry partners, right? And so it's it's very much an industry sort of based thing. And while it was exciting again to be out, I was in northern British Columbia, so I was spending my summers, you know, in mountains. Um, I got to ride helicopters to do helicopter projects. You nice. know, you're yeah, you're riding trucks and ATVs and you know, you're experiencing uh, parts of our country that many people will never see, right? Just really going into these kind of remote, isolated areas. And it was really exciting and interesting and engaged work. But for me, there was something missing there, right? Um, and the piece that seemed to be missing uh, came really solidified for me when I started my master's program and I became a teaching assistant. And being in a classroom and starting to talk about, you know, what we do how we do it and why we do it really started to resonate with me. And then I was hired on as a research assistant for my uh, master supervisor for do with Dr. Susan Jemison. Um, and so I helped her run a field school. So we were teaching students field uh, methods in archaeology, actually out at an archaeological site in Ontario. And that really just solidified for me that this is what I wanted to do. I just loved the interaction component with the students. I loved, you know, the process of discovery and exploration that we were undertaking together. And then, yeah, that that's that secondary piece of doing then the interpretations in the lab environment, watching as they were starting to connect those pieces together and and really start to connect with the past in meaningful past in meaningful ways. That really just kind of motivated me. And then by my PhD, I, w I started teaching some courses as a course instructor and it just kind of kept coming home. And plus I was getting a lot of positive reinforcement. So my students seemed to be connecting with me, mm -hmm. you know, vows were great. So I was like, Hey, this, this seems to be one of my, my jams. And so I just kind of kept running with it and have been fortunate to keep doing it. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, 
Just before we dive into your research, I have sure. one last question um, as we get to know you. Are you a gamer? Your research touches on video <laughs> games. Are you a, a video game fan? Yeah, that's the the simple answer to that. I, I grew up playing video games. I remember my mom getting an Atari system as a gift when I was a small child and us being excited about it, then playing, you know, the classic Nintendo games all the way up through various systems. I remember in grade six, uh, my my present for graduating grade six was I uh, getting good grades was I got a Sega Genesis system. And that was, you know, amazing. Was, yeah, amazing. I was so excited to switch from the Nintendo universe into Sega and explore that. Sonic the Hedgehog for days. <laughs> yeah, I liked that game a lot with Streets of Rage. We played a lot of Streets of Rage because me and my brother used to play together all the time. My mom liked gaming too, actually. She loved video games. That's we really up, interesting. Yeah, we, we, she, we used to play Street Fighter with her and the Nintendo and there was a couple of other games. So, and then, yeah, and then my, we, we played lots of board games as a family. So yeah, gaming was just kind of, what we did, be it, you know, in either digital form or in, in paper form. So, yeah. And then today I'm I, Xbox. That's my, my console. That's so. your jam. That's my jam. That's what I, I just built I my play, first yeah. gaming PC and I, I have to admit, I was a little selfish in, uh, purchasing a, all the parts and building it myself, but I use it a lot for work as well. So mm-hmm. it's a trade-off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and you know, that's kind of why when the opportunity came around to, you know, study video games formally and do it as part of my research program, I left on the opportunity because I was like, this is a great way to do something that I think is fun and I enjoy doing and then, you know, make it legitimate and valid, I guess. Yeah, but it's like quite a journey that you've gone on because the last 15 years of your research has been very different. So um, can you kind of walk us through uh, the last 15 years search? Because you obviously started in Stone Age and now you're on video games, but Yeah. yeah, just... Take us on that journey. Sure. Yeah. I, I, I guess what I really think about doing research for me, um, it began in my undergrad when I was working in cultural resource management and I was involved in a mitigation project. So basically an archaeological site had been damaged uh, by a development project and we were hired to go in and assess what had happened. And we excavated these artifacts and I remember asking my boss, well, what happens next? And she goes, oh, well, these go to the provincial repository. And I was like, well, there's so much more we can find out from these artifacts. Like we should be doing research. And she was like, well, we don't get paid to do research, right? Our job's done. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I remember thinking, and that was part of why I was like, okay, I need to maybe shift away from this as a path because I was interested in the questions, right? I wanted to learn more. And so um, I was able to study those materials actually as part of my honors thesis. And then that just kind of escalated from there. So I originally was focused on stone tools, um, because they're very abundant in the archaeological record. I now know that's because of the bias, just stone preserves well. A lot of other kinds of materials don't. Um, so I started studying stone tools. And uh, for most of my graduate career, it was focused on learning methods for analyzing stone tools and then g- coming around to those interpretive mo- models. And when I first started teaching, one of the first classes I got to help teach was a biological anthropology course. And one of the major themes around there is human evolution. And so we were dealing with fossil casts and talking about the human evolutionary journey. And of course, stone tools are part of that because our earliest record now uh, of cultural behavior is 3.5 million years, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I was thinking when I was starting to think about my PhD, I was like, well, maybe I can put these two together. And I was kind of like, you know, dream big princess. What do you want to do? And I was like, well, I want to 
I want to go to Africa. I want to do African archaeology, or in which I've since learned is Africanist archaeology, because I'm not African, right? I'm Canadian. Um, but I wanted to do archaeology that was based in Africa, and I wanted to explore our, the origin of our species and that early technological behavior. And so that that's what really 15 years ago began was when I, I joined on with my PhD research project, working with Dr. Pamela Willoughby at the University of Alberta and her other graduate students, and started to investigate that. And so that was really where I spent a lot of my time was doing work on those early assemblages associated with the first members of our species. So much more recently, about 300,000 to 40,000 years ago. And then from there, things just kind of started to change a little bit. So we we started to get some pushback from community. So we started to do some more community engaged practices. Um, from there, I started to, so, so focusing on like cultural heritage initiatives. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I identified from there was uh, that uh, basketry was an important local industry. So then recently uh, in 2008, or sorry, 2018 and 2019, I was fortunate enough to take some McEwen students with me to Tanzania and we did some uh, technological analyses of a contemporary basket weaving technology okay. in my study area. So again, kind of looking at technolo- technologies over time and changes in technology. And then sometime around that period as well, I, I was um, starting to teach a little bit about archaeologies of the contemporary, including the emerging field of archaeogaming or the archaeology in and of video games. And again, that just kind of started to make sense to me too. Yet again, here's another technology. Yeah. Here's another one that, like basket weaving technology, was at risk of us losing some critical pieces of information about its development, about how it's implemented. And so, yeah, and then I, I kind of connected with a computer scientist at the University of Calgary, which I'm sure we'll talk about more. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And yeah, so it's it's it was a weaving path, but it, technology was always the theme, right? And, and people was the other theme, right? It's not just studying the technology for technology's sake, but connecting with people. I got to stop and we got to go back because okay. <laughs> you, you said a lot of really, really dense things Sorry. That, I, yeah. that I need to unpack a little bit because we, we were talking about technology and then you said baskets and then you said all, all of these other things. So can you kind of explain to me like, the the technology in anthropology because when i think technology like i think here's my computer here's my mm-hmm. little mixer for our podcast today and like electronic parts but yeah. t- 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 talk us through the the anthropology technology sure that's fun to say yeah <laughs> yeah anthropology technology or, or anthropology of technology perhaps yeah uh, or like yeah, technology or, in the context in of the anthropology con- yeah and and i think uh, a lot of it comes down to the basic goal of anthropology, which is simply the study of humans, right? And technology undeniably is a critical part of who we are, right? And so one of the approaches that we take as anthropologists to technology is recognizing that we we, we recognize technology differently in different ways. That, yeah, we often do think about um, the ways it impacts our life in a very tangible way in terms of the hardware, for example, that's around us, right? The material components, but technology is more than just the things we use to meet our basic subsistence needs, right? It's our worldview as well as and our ideologies are incorporated into it, right? So how we understand and use technologies within a particular cultural context mm-hmm. tells a lot about who we are as a people and our understanding of the world, right? How we integrate technology and often how it becomes invisible and part of our background because it's such a pervasive part of our cultural practice, right? That we don't even think about. Um, The very act of taking a pencil 
And writing down something on a piece of paper is a technological act, right? And re represents not just the material components, but again, how we think about technology, how we use technology. It tells us a lot about um, things like cognition, right? So how we think about, um, again, the world around us, how we can interact with it, how we store information, how we present information, how we represent ourselves, all of these different things. So it's basically technology is extremely dense in terms of the amount of information yeah. we can extract from it. So, yeah. So Sounds like. Um, so all of these things encompass technology. I'm mm -hmm. curious um, about some of the earliest technologies that we might still be using or things that people don't realize are like thousands and thousands of years old, like stone tools, like yeah. arrowheads. We still have arrows. We still use knives to yeah. to cut things. So the wheel, the, <laughs> the, the I, I honestly think the wheel is the greatest technology that man uh, people have ever created. I don't air fryer. Maybe <laughs> there's probably a wheel in an air fryer. Yeah, in the there might be. So. I think you're illustrating an important thing too, right? When we think about what's like the greatest technology, often it's because of the roles it plays and how it serves us in our lives, right? And so yeah, one of the questions we do have is around the antiquity of some of these things and trying to put together, um, I hate to use the word evolutionary sequence, but how technology has changed over time and yeah, how the echoes of these earliest stone technologies can be seen in the present, right? In meaningful sorts of ways, because technologies also include like this kind of symbolic system, right? So in order to make a stone tool, we have to have a picture in our head of what that stone tool is going to be. And then we have to have the right technological skills that allow us to actualize that, right? Shape a piece of raw material from our, our physical environment and transform it into a usable form, right? So, um, so that's what I kind of look at, right? Is, is these kind of how these pieces kind of put together. Um, so for me, all of these early technologies have fed into and contributed to um, the technologies that we use today. But we can't simply just look at technologies. We also have to consider humans as like biocultural organisms as well, mm -hmm. right? So how a technology presents itself and the choice, for example, to use a particular stone over another particular stone to shape your arrowhead, right? To hunt something, let's say a bison, like we would on the Great Plains here, right? Um, that reflects our cultural understanding as well of what is valuable, what is useful, right? What is appropriate, um, and even sometimes the colors, right, you can think about would use might be linked with our identities of who we are as ourselves, but also who we are as a community, right? I make pottery this way because that's how my grandmother taught me to make it. And that's how her grandmother taught her to make it and so on and so forth, right? So stylistic variations can link to this. So, yeah, so I, it's for me, again, it's not really this kind of linear path. So that's yeah. why I hate to use the word evolution, but rather it's this kind of complex um amalgam of all these different processes and materials that come together and have definitely shaped really, our experience. I think like beautiful, this idea that like it's more of a holistic thing that yeah. happens. It's a natural mm -hmm. method rather than, okay, we made a stone knife and now we have knives of metal. Whoa. Yeah. 
right? But imagining how revolutionary some of those new, new materials would have been when they're introduced, right? So we, we were very much curious at those tension points that result when there has been a shift in that technology, right? And I often use cell phones when I'm teaching my students these concepts, right? Because this is stuff we see in our own lifetimes, right? As trends in cell phone design, right? And it's why do has cell phones gotten bigger again? Because I, when I remember when I was a Nokia flip, baby. Yeah, it was all about the little flip phones, right? And you could put it in a little pouch and you could lip it, you know, put it on a little loop on your jean yeah, belt. Yeah, on your jeans. Yeah, and it was all about small. But then this amalgam of other communication technologies with the cell phone, right? So the expansion of texting to incorporating, you know, the internet on it. Then all of the other things that came with that has led us to wanting screens on our phone, right? And very few of us use our phones for making calls anymore, right? So again, those kind of shifts are being driven by social change versus the actual mm -hmm. technological change, if that makes sense. So, But that's really interesting yeah. to me because like, as for social change, I think Nokia brought back the flip. Yeah, some of them and are And people back. were like, amazing, finally, I can pare down this crazy cell phone. And I'm like, man, we just went the whole way around. Yeah. And then you see that yeah. one company that just basically took an iPhone and, and cut it in half and like put a hinge on yeah, it. And exactly. now it's just like a, so, a touch yeah. screen phone that just like flips open. We were right, right. the first time around. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and this is the thing too, right? Is that none exist in isolation by themselves, right? We don't all of a sudden be like, oh, the new iPhone's here, so we have to get rid of all of our other phones, right? So if we don't do that in the present, why would we do that in the past? Mm -hmm. So sometimes what we have to do is just kind of challenge our assumptions as well about what technologies were like in the past, because sometimes we tend to treat them as they're like this homogeneous whole, and they're not, right? Homogeneous is the word I was looking yeah. for earlier. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. But I love that you used holistic because yeah, that's very anthropological, right? This mm -hmm. understanding of technology being only one piece of the human experience, right? And even parts of technology only being one piece and we have to try to get at this bigger picture. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so in the pre-interview form that you filled out, um, you mentioned humans are natural born <laughs> cyborgs. We loved that. We we really like grabbed yeah, onto that. Yeah, and even mm. just now you were talking yeah. about how we're these kind of technological creatures. So mm -hmm. yeah, what is a human cyborg? I'm a human cyborg. We all are, and and that comes. That's not something I can claim credit for. It comes from. It's a book title that was written by um, Andy Clark, and it's called Natural Born Cyborgs. And in it, he constructs a lovely argument that says that again that humans as biocultural biotechnical organisms it's incredibly difficult to distinguish technological behaviors from other behaviors, essentially. And that because it's been such a critical, a technological change and innovation has been such a critical part of the success of our species, that essentially we've become cyborgs, right? So when we think of cyborgs, first let's deal with this idea, right? Yeah, I think of seven of nine. Yeah, the Terminator, right? Yep. Right, so we think of this integration of mechanized parts with organic parts, right? But if we go back to the origins of cybernetics and cyborg theory and all of this in the 1960s and 70s with the rise of computer technology and systems theories and, and all of these ideas, and this actually comes out of World War II, but anyways, without getting into the background <laughs> of it, um, is that this idea that what he's arguing is that, yeah, is that this integration is so complete that we don't even realize how dependent we've become on technology, so much so to the extent um, that, yeah, to strip us away from our technologies as well, we would cease to be human that it's critically part of us. So that's why he says we are natural born cyborgs. And part of it as well as he makes arguments around our brain anatomy and our neuroanatomy is that in that we're hardwired to use technology as well, 
right? True. Um, again, the act of writing something down, right? What are we doing? Well, we're now allocating um, memory outside of our brain, right? Like pen and paper is an early version of a USB drive, right? Mm-hmm. It's just a way of storing information external to ourselves. So the very fact that we do that, that's a that's an aspect of us being cyborgs. I always thought that yeah. if we lost power or internet for more than 10 days, our entire society would would like crumble. It'd be tough. It really it, would. How would it? you know where people are? Yeah. Like, what? You, you ride your bike to the park <laughs> like you did when you were 12. I guess. And like, <laughs> I was alive during the day, but we had, a, you know, a phone. But I think if we lost, like, there are no landlines anymore. Your cell no. phone is your lifeline. And I think, that we depend on our phones. And yeah, so when someone loses their phone or leaves it at home, I think there can be this panicky, like, yeah. you know, you see. There's a be. huge disconnect yeah. that everyone, like imagine if every single person felt that for 10 days. I mean, some great things might come of that, but uh, I really think our society would collapse. I think we'd be okay in some regards though, because again, it's a, around shifting around to how we conceptualize technology and our interdependence on it, right? Again, um, digital technologies are only one technology that we use on a regular basis. And yes, a lot of them are energy dependent. Um, and that's something that we are concerned about as archaeologists, right? And it fits into archaeogaming, right? We're thinking about into the future, how can we continue to access these technologies? For example, that might be dependent on fossil fuels to run as power sources, if we move away from this increasingly into the future, archaeologists in the future could have trouble even powering some of our computers. I mean, I know I have friends who come across like old floppy disks. I still have stuff on <laughs> old floppy disks. And now finding a computer where I can access that data that's stored there is really challenging. So I think what would happen is we would just adapt and then revert to some of the other technologies that yeah. aren't fuel dependent. Leave a note on the door. I'm <laughs> looking for you. If you come to my house, stay there. Yeah. I'm on my bike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's so awesome. Well, I think we're going to take a quick break. And I'm so happy that you brought up Archeo Gaming and that we're going to continue to talk about that right when we come back from our break. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after this short break. In 2019, two best friends set out to create a business centered around shaking things up in the snack food world, and 12 Cows Beef Jerky was born. With anti-establishment values in mind, this 100% halal beef jerky will satisfy even the pickiest carnivore's palate, and it fills a need for less traditional halal foods. You can grab some here at McEwen at the Griffin's Landing Convenience Store, or you can visit 12cows.com to play your order now and get snacking. We're going to dive right in to Archeo Gaming. So Katie, can you explain to us and our listeners what exactly is Archeo Gaming and uh, what are we going to learn from this very cool emerging field? Sure. Well, hopefully you'll learn some things because I'm learning a lot as I go along because, yeah, it is an emerging field. Um, it's fairly young. It lasts kind of 10 years or so. Um, but I think its origins go back a little further. Uh, simply, archaeogaming is the archaeology in and of video games. So what... Like digging up computer chips? Ex- it can be. It can be. <laughs> Actually, Silicon Valley. <laughs> one of the most famous examples that a lot of people know outside of archaeology of archaeogaming was the Atari dig that, uh, that happened looking for the uh, missing E.T. Cartridges. Oh, I remember yes. that. Yeah, so digging E.T. or digging Atari. I can't remember what the Netflix the special was called. The most notorious 
no, the notoriously worst game that was ever all, created. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it was the worst game ever made. There's some other pretty terrible ones out there, but yeah, <laughs> they, it's, they claim that it was the worst one. Yeah. Which made everyone want it more, which yeah. is such a cool thing about our brains. But yeah. So yeah, so it can literally be using traditional archaeological field methods to excavate, you know, the the physical material culture that we would be, so the artifacts that would be associated with video games. Um, it can be uh, playing games as an archaeologist. So for example, Dr. Andrew Reinhardt, who's kind of the the pioneer behind archaeogaming really kind of formalized it as a, a, as a subdiscipline of study within archaeology. Um, he's been leading up the uh, No Man's Sky Archaeology Survey Project. Um, I can't remember what their acronym is, but uh, so that's using archaeological survey methods that we use here in the real world, but applying it to a virtual or digital environment. So, uh, so mapping out landforms and looking at uh, change in sites when people visit them over time in a you know a, a massive multi or massively multiplayer online game such as No Man's Sky. Um, it's also been other things like, uh, for example, some people have argued that what uh, Grandma Shirley does, so she's a streamer who plays Skyrim and she's a botanist. And essentially what she's doing is almost a form of like ethnobotany. So she collects different plants in Skyrim and, and spends a lot of time documenting, you know, where they're found and what they can be used for, what their properties are. Um, sometimes it can be simply just engaging with archaeological elements present in games. So uh, the Tomb Raider series, Uncharted, verse, uh, both, of course, famously feature kind of archaeologists kind of as their protagonists. <laughs> Loosely. Loosely, right? So, but again, exploring temples, those kind of contexts, um, which again, similar to us. So we kind of play games sometimes as archaeologists and play up the ar archaeological opportunities. So look at how we can, how the past is represented in video games. As world. So I remember when I was playing Skyrim, I always did all the side quests I could do. I logged like 220 hours in Skyrim. I probably shouldn't admit to that. Um, you know, exploring dwarven ruins and, and investigating, you know, abandoned sites and stuff like that. And, and so part of it's that. Or you can do archaeogaming like I do, which is uh, studying the digital record associated with early video game technology. That's really fascinating don't worry about the skyrim hours i think my partner has like triple that he's been yeah. playing it for i don't know 10 years it's amazing yeah. <laughs> i'm like again that okay. was the first game yeah i i, I maxed it or I, I beat 200 hours on and then after that it was mass effect because again going back to my he childhood is currently roots, playing mass effect yeah. so i think <laughs> i cried when i landed on the moon i mean I started playing this new video game, well, and this was right at the beginning of the pandemic that I kind of fell into this game because when else do you have time to do these things, um, was Ark Survival yeah. Evolved um, ba based on like dinosaurs and, and from from what I understand, it's actually quite accurate on, on like the naming of dinosaurs and like what they look like. Obviously, you can like customize your dinosaur, mm -hmm. but it's a hard game. <laughs> yeah, Ark is like really um, real very cool. Yeah. So, yeah, you mentioned uh, that this current research is born of Twitter. Yeah. So um, I first heard about uh, Dr. Reinhardt's work uh, that he was doing as then uh, a, a student. He was a graduate student at the time. And he was just kind of blogging about it. And he created, you know, archaeogaming.com, his website, where he was blogging about these sorts of things. And um, he was very active on Twitter. I was very active on Twitter. So I was coming across his tweets and his blog posts. And I was really excited about it. So when I was teaching about archaeologies of the contemporary with my students, I just happened to mention, I was like, oh, yeah, and there's some, you know, weirdos like myself who are, you know, 
basically want to be archaeologists all the time. And so we're doing these kinds of things with video games. And one of my students was very interested and passionate about this idea and came to me and we ended up doing an independent study course. And so then along with them, we were tweeting about the work we were doing in this independent study course. We were attempting to dive a bit more deeper into some of the, not just the methods in archaeology that could be used to, st to study video games, uh, but also, um, again, more of the broader anthropological literature and archaeological theory and how that could be applied. And so we were tweeting about their, their coursework. Uh, we had a big social media component of their grade. So we were doing that. They ended up doing a panel at Edmonton Expo one year talking about archaeo gaming as well. Um, and then one of my, my colleagues at the University of Calgary, Dr. John Icock, um, he saw that I was tweeting about these things and he just DM'd me one day and was like, hey, I have this idea for this paper I've been working on. I think an archaeologist could really look at this. And I noticed that you're interested in archaeo gaming. So what do you think? And so he sent me what is now our mystery house paper. Mm -hmm. And so he sent us the work he'd been doing on the Apple um, II uh, computer game. And it's one of the earliest uh, text adventures. It's the first text adventure to have graphics in it. So it has representations of the said mystery house in it. And uh, yeah, and then we I, I read what he'd been working on. was like, wow, this really sparked something in my brain kind of wrote up a few initial ideas and then it just kind of went back and forth from there. And uh, yeah. So Twitter, thanks Twitter for connecting me with, uh, you know with what? John. Twitter can be a friend as well as foe. Yeah. And I will stand by Twitter um, in journalism. Like you basically, that's where you go. Uh, yeah. But yeah, with research too, it's great as a collaborative tool. Yeah. I stay far away from Twitter. I'm, I don't know. I always, I always would fall back to it for the wrong reasons. It's like, oh, um, this company messed up my order, and like it got, it got <laughs> lost, United and I've been, and um, yeah, or like, yeah, like a thing is just like, oh, thanks, so and so, yeah. And that's what I was falling onto it more, and because there was no other information on Twitter that I really like connected with or could find that I connected with, yeah. Um, so I kind of gave it up for a while. But I'm really happy to know that they kind of like brought about this this new form of research. So this you're saying it's like relatively new research. You um you mentioned it's about ten years old. What what is if it that. like? If that, <laughs> <laughs> what's it like uh, working with such a new field of of research? And then like how does the research differ when you have little or no theory basis to work from? Like you, with all the research in like philosophy and things like that those are thousands of years old and, and archaeology as well it's like these are millions of years old like practices almost yeah I, I mean I've been thinking about this question a lot um I mean it's exciting it definitely is exciting because you get to to do what um in some cases in some ways few get to do in terms of trailblazing right I, I really get to kind of do what I want because who is going to say that I'm doing the wrong thing Right. I, I mean, so in peer review, definitely. Like, yeah. there's definitely some people who have responded weirdly to what we're doing, and they're like, "Yeah, no, you're we are way too much pushing the boundaries of what archaeology is," um, and that's just fuel for my fire. I'm like, "Great, this is exactly what I love doing." That like, that's Amazing. a really important part of how I teach archaeology too. Is really critically interrogating what it is archaeology is, what we do, how we do it, why we do it, and importantly, who's doing archaeology. So. Um, so it's been it's it's been invigorating and exciting, but yeah, it's challenging because uh, it really forces me to 
dig hard into my discipline, right? So when, again, John has my co-author, computer scientist at the University of Calgary, he's the one who's been really kind of behind this and driving this and are, are choosing our focal points. So he was one who came up with Mystery House. Our second paper came out of a tool that he developed and had been studying to analyze uh, corpuses of games rather than just an individual game and extract data from them. Um, and uh, yeah, so he'll send me these things and then he's just kind of like, okay, so what does an archaeologist think about this, right? And so that's what I do then is I go back to, again, these basic ideas that come out of anthropology around, well, how do we approach technology fundamentally? And, and for me, a lot of that has been, again, how do we think about the past and how do we think about how the past is preserved and recorded and documented because in many ways um, our the history of humankind is one of materials right um, and so unless it, it has a material form we cannot capture it we can't study it um, and so digital games are interesting because it does have a material form but they're also it doesn't at the same time right <laughs> it's, like it's it's like honestly modern music like there's yeah. no it's it's all I guess you write it down whatever but it's all digital everything's yeah. online everything's whatever yeah um, I, I the the university um, must find your research like extremely interesting because it has it's it, like again we talk about how new it is <laughs> um, and it's like something that I think McEwen could really get behind be like a not a pioneer I hate that term but like very very new in this this field and maybe put us on the map for some really cool archaeology archaeo gaming yeah things well hopefully it can put a McEwen on the map I'd love for it to be one of the ways that we can be visible um and yeah I think what a lot of people get excited about um I mean students get excited just because it's a fun topic right there it's relatable yeah. it's something people can connect to um but because it's so interdisciplinary right so um our current uh research grant it's not just myself and John but we have uh, Dr. Carl Therian from the University of Montreal who's one of our collaborators and he's an expert in like digital humanities. So, right. So this is a very, that sounds fascinating. Yeah. Interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary study. And I think that's what um, kind of puts it on McEwen's radar because that's, um, you know, as a small university, we have a lot of potential to, to do some really excellent things in that kind of realm. And uh, so. Well, we briefly yeah. talked with Isabel Sperano and Robert and Druco on their video game, Life on the Edge. Mm -hmm. And it's really cool to see, um, like, we have our own um, game development club at McEwen. Yeah. And uh, a lot of the musicians from our music department have joined the live, uh, the game, <laughs> sorry, I keep saying live music, yeah. um, but game development club. Um, so, you know, video game things are happening. And that seems to be like a lot of the way that people, especially during a global pandemic, mm -hmm. how a lot of people <laughs> stayed <Animal> connected. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it became yeah. a, lot, a lot of like a part of our, our last two years was a lot of interfacing through video games. Yeah, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but like play and imagination, mm -hmm. like haven't they been kind of integral in our development as a species and not just like when young people play, you're imagining novel situations. You're learning mm -hmm. how to react to things that may have not happened or may never happen. So that we're not using video games and gaming in a broader context for, you know, teaching purposes or like medical treatments or anxiety relief or fighting dementia. Like I'm so sure that everyone likes a game and whether it's mm -hmm. a board game, a card game, a video game, head games, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, it's such a promising 
field. So I think that's really cool. Yeah. Uh, just before we go to a small break, um, I just want to know kind of what the biggest takeaway from the Mystery House project was and kind of, you know, what you might be taking forward to apply to the Atari project that we will talk about after the break. Sure. Yeah. I think the big thing for me is just this idea of um, how critical it is that people like myself, archaeologists who study the past, start really thinking about the recent past and the contemporary past, because the reality is, is that because games and digital games have absolutely exploded, right? As for all the reasons you've explained, and it has so many applications and again, how we're so connected through our technologies and, and specifically digital technologies is that um, we need to be involved in documenting them and understanding these technologies now because our ability to access them and lead into the future and have such a rich record of them is only going to decline um, as more time goes on. And so it will become increasingly difficult and challenging to not only access these materials, but to come up with meaningful interpretations about what was going on um, and how this tells us about, yeah, our shared human experience and a little bit about our journey as humans on, you know, our little blue rock. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a short break. This is Research Recasted. Don't go away. Or you know what? Go anywhere you want. It's a podcast. Take it with you. We'll be right back. On today's topic of video games, have you heard about the McEwen Game Development Club? The McEwen Game Development Club was founded in October 2015 with the goal of helping students and other individuals interested in game development with their professional development. By participating in a semester-long workshop, members are able to gain hands-on experience in making games while growing their professional portfolios. Additionally, the Game Development Club offers a variety of other activities and events that provide opportunities for networking, volunteering, and fun. You can check them out at McEwenGameDev.com. Welcome back to Research Recasted. We've been talking, well, I've kind of derailed the conversation a little bit just to talk more about video games, um, as I do. Um, that's one of my, you know, who, who, who doesn't love video games? Um, but we're here with Katie Bittner, and we're, we want to talk a little bit more. You've been doing some research on Atari. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this project and kind of like, I know it's still ongoing, <laughs> but tell us a little bit about this project and like where it's going. Yeah, it's really kind of in its, it's it's past its gestational stage. It's in its infancy. It's just been born. So um, last year, uh, myself and John um, and Carl applied for what's called the New Foundations and Research Fund grant. It's a new tri-council grant, and we, we were successful in getting it. So we have um, just over $200,000 over the next two years to study Atari. And so in our proposal, um, so John, as a computer scientist, has developed some tools uh, that allow him to reverse engineer some of these early digital games. And he has access now to um, essentially a big chunk of the corpus of, of those early Atari games. That's can so I, cool. Yeah. yeah. Can I just ask why Atari? Um, I think, well, I know John would give a different answer for this. For me, it's there's just something about the Atari system as representing kind of a critical phase in video game development yeah. and video game design. It was a huge turning point yeah. in the technology. So I like think. for anyone yeah. who's not a gamer yeah. or kind of a low key nerd like some of us here. <laughs> or um, a big key nerd like yeah, some of us. Key. Yeah, high key. Yeah. <laughs> um 
why like why was the Atari such a such a big thing? Like where did it come along in the evolution of the system? So that's actually one of the things that we're investigating through this is um, is again how Atari games and what is it about Atari games and the Atari console that have made them so um, foundational in digital game um, in, in, in its history, right? And a lot of it has to do with the other part of our project that we want to look at, which is the Fairchild Channel F platform. And this is because um, it was the first um, console in which uh, the cartridges were... Uh, the, sorry, the games were on cartridges, right? So you didn't have all of the games built into the console. And so Atari was the first system to really successfully explode with this uh, capacity to do this. And then as such, pushed out a bunch of games, right? And developed this huge corpus of games that allowed people to interact with it. So I think that was a critical piece of it in terms of the history of video games. And it also kind of brought it into the mainstream a little bit more, right? Plus, there's a whole narrative that involves, you know, what was going on in different parts of the world at the time, right? So we have kind of a Japanese technological tradition around games. We have what's going on in North America. We have things that are going on in Europe at the same time. So really kind of Atari represents a key hinge point. But ultimately, honestly, what it comes down to is that's that's the system of my youth. That's the system of John's youth. It's it's what speaks to us. And, and so when thinking about you know, again, the foundations of digital games, of, of video games, um, Atari is is a, a really critical piece of that puzzle. Okay. I interrupted you, yeah, so please. Okay. I don't <laughs> so remember guys, where I was. Um, you were just <laughs> yeah. walking oh. us through. You oh, guys got together. Yeah. You're looking at Atari to reverse engineer? Yeah. So so John um, and he, we have funding to hire. So he has a graduate student who he's hired. And so basically what they're doing is they're going through and they've, they're developing these analytical tools that allow them to essentially reverse engineer the code. So find out exactly how these games were programmed, right? And then so once they're done that process and we have all this data, that's when myself and then I'm going to be hiring a couple of research students from here at McEwen to assist me with the analysis of that output from an archaeological perspective. So while John and his team are doing all the computer science stuff and they're generating data for me, I will then be looking at the data and applying some different theoretical lenses some different concepts and some different approaches to attempt to extract as much as we possibly can about how these games were made. And what's important to me in terms of my own approach is looking at technological choices, right? So what are the decisions that are being made at kind of key junctions that lend to the games we ultimately see that are played and experienced by people, right? So I want to look at what's going on in the background and what choices were being made and how this is then shaping that technology. That's so cool. So when does the McEwen Arcade open? <laughs> Good question. I don't know. So yeah. uh, aside, as I, I'm the ki the king of asides, mm -hmm. um, I, in, as a hobby, collect, well, I can't really say I collect them, but I am passionate about stand-up arcade machines. Mm -hmm. And so I'm rewiring an old Mortal Kombat Ultimate machine. Oh my God, that's the best game. Um, but the machine that I that I'd received, I bought I bought it off of a friend, mm -hmm. and it was a Mortal Kombat one cabinet. Mm -hmm. That's the um, that Midway once Mortal Kombat three came out had just like sent them new. Here's a new decal. Yeah. Throw this on. Here's a new faceplate for the thing. And then you throw the new ROMs in the in the motherboard, and you're good to go. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm I'm right now just like getting that recircuited, and the, obviously the CRT is. 
the screen is hard to get replacement parts for yeah. CRTs since they don't make them anymore. Yeah. Um, so I'm retrofitting it with a flat screen, unfortunately. Anyways, aside, I wanted to bring it to McEwen, to our TV studio, or to like some of a, a public space where students could admire it and, mm-hmm. and play it, and yeah, uh, and just kind of almost donate it to the school until I left. But <laughs> we'll see. I, I just well, let wa- me know. I'll find room for it in the archaeology lab. Yeah, I wonder if I wonder <laughs> if like how long it would take for people to like notice it and be actually starts being like this shouldn't be here. <laughs> If you see a if you see a Mortal Kombat machine come uh, pop up in Allard Hall, just um, you know we know who to blame. Yep. Yes, we know okay. who to blame. Um. And it's not me. No, just joking. <laughs> no. So yeah, just yeah. coming a little sure. bit back. Um, so you're reverse engineering the code mm-hmm. um, to understand the decisions that were made in the programming. Correct. So I guess like I just want to know a little bit more about like. What are you looking for? Like, what is it going to tell us? Like, the decisions that are made, I guess I'm kind of still a little bit confused yeah. on, like, what are we looking for? Well, these games, like, formed our childhood, right? Like, yeah. so it's it's like... But are you looking for, like, the influence on the game developer? Like, are you looking at how the game affects the user? Like... Yeah, so I'll be honest. This is one of those weird things for me where um, I don't inherently approach this data with a research question in mind normally and and my students are going to nail me for this because this (laughs) I argue this is what you have to do right all Mm -hmm. archaeological research has to be based in having clear research questions so we have these broader questions around it so what I look for is what are some patterns that I see for example right so what are some clear things that I'm seeing um that's are sticking out. And then the question is, okay, well, why are they sticking out? Right? So is it my own bias that's shaping it? Or is it something that I, my attention should be drawn to this because it serves an important function. So I'm attempting to understand again, what the various, what we'll call attributes of the code mean and represent and what they tell us beyond just simply, Oh, this is a command that makes the color red appear on the screen. (laughs) Right? Because that's the practicality of it. And that's again, what the computer science team is really good at doing is, is breaking down, okay, this is what it means, this is why this happens, oh, this is how it connects with the hardware to impact the player experience. What I'm looking at is for those other kinds of patterns. And it's 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 weird because I, I don't know what I'm see, looking for until sometimes I find it, until something really starts to resonate with me. Um, and then I'll, I'll see it. And then again, something that's analogous to an archaeological problem or an archaeological outcome or what I've I've come across in studying basket basketry or studying stone tools and they'll be like oh hey this is like this right so for example when we were looking at um um called the graphic adventure creator which was our second paper that we wrote um one of the things that stuck out to me was that so this is a tool that was being used by um anybody that they wanted to, to create games for this particular platform for the Apple II. And so what I was interested in was looking at patterns of word frequencies, for example, because players or or the designers, the people who are programming this, who often were players who were building these games, what they were doing, and so we analyzed a corpus of games using uh, that were created using GAC, um, is that I was looking at, for example, patterns of word usage and how this might tell us something about, again, the people who are making this, right? And so I was curious to see if there was any... Um, things that stuck out aside from things like directional commands, right? Because you'd expect to see that in text adventures that you'd need to be able to say like open door, go, you know, 
head north or or whatever, like pick up knife, right? All of those sorts of things. So I wanted to see, well, you know, thematically, what may be some things that uh, were co- uh, were popping up? What were some of the maybe restrictions that were placed? And it turned out in terms of words, there was very few restrictions. So I was able to sneak an F-bomb into an academic paper. And I was so proud of that. That's amazing. <laughs> right? Yeah. And actually like <laughs> throw it out there. I mean, it ended up in a footnote um, after some negotiation, but regardless, the, the ability that people had that capacity. So then it starts to become, okay, well, why would someone want to swear or create swear words in a video game that they've built, right? So what is that telling us about who they are, but also the cultural context of that? And and so what is word choice, for example, telling us about not just technological traditions, but cultural traditions and expectations around, yeah, who players are and all of those ideas? That's really interesting because you think of that all the time when the, those word adventures, mm-hmm. um, just like the use of profanity, they have to account for that. And yeah. like sometimes making witty responses, like if I if I swear at my cell phone, hey Siri, you know, sometimes you get a funny response depending yeah. on what you can say. So that is like play your own adventure is just like old day Siri. But I mean, look at uh, look at games now with like mm-hmm. profanity. Like we have some very profane games. So it's interesting oh, yeah. to me that like it started in the OG times yeah. and has continued to move forward. But um, yeah. in those in those adventure games. The player would have had it had to initiate that, not the video game initiating it like in modern times. And not only that, the programmer would have had to anticipate and create rules that would allow the player to input that word and for that word to have meaning, right? Because, again, a lot of those text-based adventure games were all based on these two-word commands, right? So if you're dropping an F-bomb it has to have some sort of tangible outcome in terms of actions in the game, right? Because that was one of the challenges. I remember learning how to play these games when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And I remember that was one of the challenges was learning the language of the game. Yeah, and what commands, because you could tell it to do something, but it wouldn't do it unless you program the commands in just right. And I wish I knew what that game was called because it frustrated me. I could always get to one point and then I don't know what it was asking for. Yeah, so... And that's where we come back to the anthropological side of things, just like trying to understand why that happened, like why was it programmed that way? Yeah. And again, it's it's because it reflects not just, again, the technological knowledge of the programmer, but also, again, their situation within gaming culture more broadly, right? So understanding what people would want to hear or what they'd expect to hear, right? And so one of the things with Atari that I'm anticipating I'll be able to look at are these kind of expectations around, well, what does an Atari game look like, right? And then how does that manifest in the code itself? And then vice versa, how does that tell us something about you know, again, the programmers themselves, right? What does it mean to innovate, for example? So we're working on a paper right now um, with an early um, programmer behind an Atari game called Entombed. So we're working with Paul Allen Newell, um, and he actually has boxes filled with all of his old uh, original versions. So we've been just going through, and I'm applying um, a framework called uh, the Harris Matrix that we use for uh, representing profiles of sediment, like an, an strata of sediment within an archaeological site, to look at how his code, different versions of his code, change leading up to implementation of the game. So That's we're documenting. So cool. Yeah. So I'm anticipating we'll do some of that with the Atari instead. But again, because we're going to be looking at all of the different games, it'll be looking at you know commonalities and differences between them. Also looking at how the Atari system and the Atari um, software and hardware 
has imposing constraints on the programmers and designers themselves, right? There's limitations in terms of what it can do, right? It cannot do 3D graphics. That was not part of the capacity. So how are they then coming up with innovations within the constraints of the system itself, right? So these are all the things that I'm hoping will come out a little bit. You know, one of the one of the games, as soon as we started talking about like the choose your own adventure and like almost Easter eggs being built into games and stuff like that. I keep going back to Hideo, Hideo Kojima yeah. with Metal Gear and how it you literally had to, or those game, let's, I'll start with this one, is, <laughs> is you had to take your controller out, you had to physically unplug your controller and the, the save cartridge and put it into this, the second slot to be able to like do anything. And, uh, it was really interesting for me that it was making me do physical actions mm -hmm. outside of the video game world. It was interact. It was making me part of the game, and then I think in in future versions of perhaps that game on computer file, there's a computer game where you have to actually go into the file structure of the video game yeah. on your computer and switch these files around. Mm -hmm. Very. Oh, it was um, Doki Doki Literature Club. Okay. It's an online. It's a dating simulator horror game yeah oh my yeah 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 but a lot of games are are like that right and we don't even think of it or don't even realize that yeah the game forces us to behave in certain ways but the game also anticipates that we will know how to behave in other ways as well right and so this is kind of where yeah that anthropological piece but also comes from other studies as well so a lot of anthropology technology comes from technological studies outside of anthropology as well and looking at things like yeah player behavior and agency and all of these ideas yeah so, so for this research project like mm -hmm. it's in its infancy still so what's what's what are some of your long-term goals for the project and like do you have a timeline when you think it's going to like wrap up but when you when we should be expecting results because i want to i want to know <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah well because our grant is a two-year grant um the plan is to um do most of our analyses and most of the work in the next two years and then shift to focusing on dissemination. Um, and so to do that part of this as well as we want to go visit, uh, visit the um, National Video Game Archive Museum in Texas. So we're hoping to do a research trip there to actually uh, go through some of the hardware and some of the archival materials that they have um, in relation to the early Atari system, but also again to uh, Fairchild Station F as well and some of those materials that are storage there. And so we'll be looking at the actual hardware components and, and that stuff. So um, so over the next little bit, so right now the tool um, that has been developed is working. They're running some analysis. We have a couple of other side projects we're trying to finish up as well, including this entombed piece that we're working on with uh, Paul Allen Newell. Um, and then, so hopefully we'll start publishing within the next two years and getting some of our results out. Um, and yeah, we're looking at formal academic publications um, and conference pu uh, publications as well, but also looking at other ways of disseminating some of this work. So well, if, like if you, what? So we'll see I'm what like, happens. Yeah. Do, do you have any like interesting... Like your own video game that is is the dissemination? <laughs> well, this is the thing, right? Is So one of the ways that we could disseminate it would be looking at, yeah, how we could use different kinds of virtual spaces for people to kind of interact with our data and with some of our results and conclusions and stuff like that. So, yeah, so I, I, don't, I don't know, like that's one of those pieces that, you know, you think about, we have a lot of traditional means that we will follow through uh, with, but there's also a lot of 
latitude, I would say, right? That where we can move around and come up with some really fun and interesting and innovative ways. And Well, keep us posted. I will. Well, and I'm hoping actually that, honestly, that piece of it, I really want to come from students. I love to have some students who would run with some of this stuff because, um, yeah, I think that's where we're right. Those new ideas, those fresh young brains can really come up with stuff that even I can't conceptualize yet because those different ways of interacting with peer groups and all of that stuff can be really exciting and interesting. So I think it broadens the audience for dissemination as well. Mm-hmm. Um, not that that's really, I don't know, a, a goal, but yeah. I mean, it know, always more- is a goal though. I mean, the yeah. more knowledge we can share and the more like the work that you're doing is like important because like all research is important. Learning is important. We I mean, can there's never... a reason we're doing this podcast right yeah, now. Yeah. So Clearly. I would, I would disagree with Dylan. It is important. <laughs> Get it out there. Yeah. Well, and I know other Archeo gamers, right, are really utilizing social media platforms. So uh, I know there's people like Archeo Fritz on, on Instagram has been posting some of the Archeo gaming that they've recently been doing, playing some games, right? Like Archeo gaming began on the web, right? With blogs, um, Twitter, of course, lots of dissemination is occurring there in terms of threads and communicating that. So probably even on Twitch, you know, live streams of this. For stuff. sure, yeah. Actually, one of the conferences that we presented at was was held over Twitch. Was That's the platform, so yeah, Foundation awesome. for Digital Games, yeah. So right, like it, I think really the sky's the limit in terms of this. But a lot of it will come down to what are some of the kind of core outcomes that come from our research, and then that will allow us to figure what the best way to communicate those various outcomes will be. Are there any plans for maybe um, an Archeo gaming course or independent study so far at McEwen? I know, again, it's a very young field and you're creating theory Mm -hmm. as you're doing this research, but um, I feel like a lot of profs have their research inform their teaching. So Mm -hmm. do you have like, would that be something that would interest you? Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, a couple of years ago, I did teach an independent study course or, or, or develop it with my student um, on it. And a lot of it was just kind of seeing what has been done to date and where we could potentially go. Now we're seeing it take off and grow. Um, actually, I'm teaching a, a, a special topics course this term and I actually threw it out there as an option to my chair. But we eventually concluded that, yeah, because it is so new and still so emerging, it makes it hard to develop a whole course around it. But yeah, at some point in the future, I definitely would like to introduce it into my rotation. But as I mentioned, it comes up as a lecture topic in quite a few of my archaeology courses. So, mm-hmm. And I just yeah. want to check that this is right. Um, so beyond archaeology, yeah. you also teach courses um, in race and gender studies? In gender has been okay. my major area. In gender. Yeah. Um, so are there any plans to approach archaeo gaming from a gendered perspective and like can you talk a little bit about how gender and gaming interact yeah so actually a lot of work has been done on gendering games outside of anthropology and so now what i want to do is start to yeah get bring that aspect into the archaeo gaming research and really start to engage critically with some of the the incredible work that's been doing particularly around intersectional feminism so it's not just you know, gender, but it's looking at how gender and ethnicity, right, intersect um, and and influencing class and all these different factors. And so that's part of the reason why we want to look at the Fairchild um, system, because it was developed and pioneered by an early African-American programmer or engineer or black engineer. Um, some of the early games associated with Atari were uh, designed, including Centipede, which there you go, you're a big Atari gamer, yeah. right? Or arcade gamer, right? Centipede was the one of the arcade games back in the day it was Donna Bailey, right? And so one of the things that I'm curious at at is that because we're dealing with a time period where we do know who some of the players or some of the agents were behind these things, 
is looking at how their identities might have shaped some of the the what they were doing within these technological systems, but also how it might have shaped also the trajectories that different things take. So a lot of more contemporary research in video games has looked at things like gender representation. Uh, there's been some neat studies that have looked at color palletization in different games that are coded to different genders. There's been some interesting studies that have been done looking at different kinds of games and how they are sold and promoted as kind of gendered products. Yeah. And then also studies in terms of, well, what kind of games do people play? Because the reality is, is that people don't even realize that they're playing video games now because apps, right? And I remember talking about this Life video game. Life is a video game. It's like <laughs> yeah. Candy Crush. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that, or Farmville, like on oh Facebook, gosh. right? Like I can't think of how many of my older relatives, and by older, I mean like in their 60s and 70s, who when they first got onto Facebook, mostly largely driven because they wanted to see pictures of like their grandchildren and stuff, mm -hmm. right? Who then became gamers. Yeah. Because they became obsessed with these games. And like right? super obsessed. My mom yeah. and aunt would like message me and be like, quick, go harvest your honey. I yeah. need some. And yeah. I'd be like, I sent okay. You, I sent you a gift. You have to send me a gift back. <laughs> right? Why didn't you log in yeah. and get your points? Right? And you're like, whoa. whoa. You're, yeah. You're the same person who was telling me to like, you know, stop playing Zelda and go study for math. And, mm -hmm. and now you're telling me to stop making dinner and, you know, <laughs> go on log on to Facebook. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so that's, part, so there's been a lot of studies around that. And so I'm kind of curious about that as well, because there's definitely some stereotypes around, you know, who was involved in early gaming culture. And I, I you know, one of the things I do as an anthropologist and as an archaeologist is I, I'm very critical about how exclusionary some of these kind of what we might call master narratives of our past are specifically relating to technology. So a good example of this is going back to stone tools is that a lot of early narratives about who was using stone tools was the man, the hunter model, right? These very androcentric models that made by, um, you know, n not intentionally, but uh, implicitly what happened was they made women and children invisible in the archaeological record because you get these grand stories about men creating tools, men going out for the hunt. And then by default, it's like, well, then what are the women and children doing? Well, the, clearly they must be cow cowering back in the caves and just waiting for the men to bring Berry food. Very picking. And yeah. And then, yeah. And then we have, you know, this counterpoint with women, the gatherer, but then we have this kind of reinforcement then of gender roles. And then the question starts to become, well, is this actually how gender was in the past? Or are we just projecting contemporary models into the past? And uh, people like myself believe that that's absolutely the case, right? It's our own bias, our own cultural understanding that we're then is shaping our narratives. So one of the things that I want to do with this study is be a lot more intersectional in the approach is attempt to, um, again, look at this early implementation of video game narrative that exists and go, okay, well, who's missing from it, right? Why do we talk about it in these kind of polarizing ways? Why do we have these certain identities that are represented? And then also how is this shaping our video games as well? And, and who are, yeah, because I remember yeah. um, Gamergate being a, a big thing, yeah. but like women in gaming and like, I know Dylan is big on Twitch. Um, so uh, I'm not big on Twitch. I'm, on Twitch? I'm, I'm on Twitch. Twitch a lot. <laughs> <laughs> He's on Twitch. I'm not on Twitch. Um, but there is, I think, this trope of the gamer girl. And the yeah. gamer girl is a rare creature where it's like, no, a lot of women are gaming. We mm -hmm. have always been gaming. I mean, you used to game with your mom before, like, mom's In game. the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> In the 80s. And now you have a daughter? 
Yes, I do. Do you game with your daughter? We do. Yeah, actually, it's it's one of the the best things. Was kind of I mm-hmm. remember we tried to introduce video games to her. You know, not super early, but just because it was something that we did. Her parents we did around her all the time, and so we kind of started to introduce like the Lego games was a big thing. We introduced those to her, and she thought they were okay because she liked running around smashing stuff. Because who doesn't? Yeah, right. Like that? And you're and, like arms fly. Yeah, off, and your arms and fly. It's off. cute. Yeah. I liked the Lego. They're super games. cute. They're an fun, <laughs> and they're familiar, right? So we played ones that had characters that she knew and loved. Um, and so that was easy. And yeah, and now she introduces me to games. And it's neat because one of her favorite things to do is watch people play games. So she watches a lot of YouTubers and she loves horror games in particular. That's yeah. my kid's jam. And so, yeah, so and I love them, too. So we'll sit there mm-hmm. and we'll watch people play games together. And it's become, yeah, it's part of our our family culture. And yeah, it's yeah. now what three generations worth Again, of, of, such of gaming. An interesting yeah. thing yeah. is like yeah. not only. Like, are we playing more games? We watch people, yeah. other people play games. And there is something yeah. very satisfying about it. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there's a whole other research project uh, just in that A hundred percent. If anyone is doing one, please contact us at <laughs> Research Recasted. We want to talk to you. We will change the name of Research Recasted to Game Recasted. I don't know. That's a horrible name. We'll think of something. <laughs> but we're going we're gonna to start another <laughs> podcast that's just about talking about video games. I mean, that would be very cool if someone wants to hire me to do that. I am in. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, no, I think that's really cool that you're approaching this from not only a gender, like, lens looking at gender, but also intersectionality because yeah. we all know how the world is going <laughs> and being intersectional, being inclusive and understanding that there is no one way to look at things. There is no one trope. There is one, like, Life is holistic the way that anthropology is holistic and everything is more than you can see. So For sure. Yeah. And I mean, there's just so many opportunities to explore it in so many different ways, right? If we think about even just, again, who is creating games now, right? Just the capacity for kind of anyone to find some basic tools and create their own games and release them on Twitch or or on Steam, right? And, And how that we've seen like an explosion of, Indigenous-led content in video games of of late, right? And and thinking about how that can contribute to then processes like truth and reconciliation. Like video games are such a powerful um, tool, and again, they're so now part of our society that we don't even really think of them as something kind of kitschy or weird anymore. And yeah, so addressing the kind of tropes that still exist and still persist, I think, is a critical part of that. Is saying that, like, listen, yeah, we have this narrative that back in the '80s, you know, it was like. The same guys who were holed up in their basement with their parents playing Dungeons and Dragons were playing video games. Well, spoiler alert, it was also, you know, girls like myself who were playing video games with my mom, right? And and Dungeons and Dragons. And Dunge- yeah, and Dungeons and Dragons too, right? Like, and, you know, so it's just kind of challenging. And so this there is that intersection, of course, with media studies as well. Um, that comes into play here. I would love to have yeah. another whole entire podcast actually dedicated to that. So, well, you know, one of my favorite things about video games was the like the immersion in a story and the the thought of like the other side of it, not just like oh, this is entertainment, but it's like okay, this is now like film and and other forms of like even like a, a just a great story. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a game that came out a few years ago. It was in early development for like eight years, and it kind of flopped. But it was called We Happy Few, mm-hmm. and it was about a, a a a town that everyone was taking this drug that kept them happy, 
Mm-hmm. And if you didn't take your, your drug, you were called a downer. Mm-hmm. And you were sent to the other side of town that was like the downer side of town. And it was a huge uh, metaphorical translation to almost to George Orwell's 1984 or had mm-hmm. to do with similar similar happenings around the Berlin Wall and and a lot of lot of cultural things that were happening that they were trying to like really um, portray in this video game and I thought it was really unique they were using this video game to do that yeah a lot and, and that's the thing right right now that's what we're seeing is people are creating video games that are reflecting their realities and their lived experiences right there's been so many powerful games representing queer voices, for example, and mm-hmm. queer realities like dating games, for example, right? Looking at that challenging, you know, heteronormativity, right? Why are romantic interests always male and female? Well, let's challenge that. Um, why are, you know, interests always romantic and sexual? What about other kinds of relationships that people build? I mean, look at Last of Us, right? It's being filmed right here in our city and, and, you know, the beauty of that narrative isn't a romantic storyline, right? It's it's about the power of kin and community and personal connections, right? There's something very beautiful about that. And so, yeah, a video game speaks so much to who we are, right, as a society. And so I, d- I just want to kind of go back in time a little bit and see a little bit about, you know, who we were back then and, you know, and get a better picture of that because we definitely, again, have these narratives of what things were and that ne- isn't necessarily the case. I mean, yeah. I think that sums it up yeah. just about uh, perfectly. Um, those are really all the questions we have for you. But before we finish, uh, we always open up our floor to the guest. So, you know, is there anything that we didn't ask or anything you want to expand on or mention before we wrap up? This is your time to shine. Oh, I've been thinking about this all day. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and here we are now. Now I'm like, oh yeah, what was I going to say? Uh, no, I think we, we covered everything. I, I guess what I... The can I be a bit of a mom here? A hundred percent, yes. Mom? Yeah, is I guess that's the the thing about the lovely thing about research, right? Is that um, don't be afraid to reinvent yourself in some ways, um, but also don't be afraid to just kind of follow your passions. And you know, I, I I acknowledge I'm really lucky. There's been a lot of serendipity and luck in my own personal journey that's led me to where I am today. And the fact that I actually yeah, have a major research grant to study video games, like I never thought this would have happened you know, even a decade ago. I, and I mean, I had a friend who in graduate studies was playing World of Warcraft for their master's degree. But I mean, you know, so wow. I, I guess, yeah, Genius. it's just, it's just, yeah, it's just keep, it's just keep, keep on doing it. And if it seems strange and weird and if people are like, what are you doing? Then, then do it more, right? Just, just do it. Um, allow, follow those, those waves of intuition, follow those gut instincts and follow those opportunities and, and, and let those connections grow and flourish. And, and sometimes they're dead ends. Like I've had lots of research projects that got really excited about and then they just kind of went nowhere and then it just kind of disappeared. And then, but this technology theme seems to be constant. So yeah, just kind of. I think it's a good go horse it. to bet on yeah. going forward. <laughs> yeah. Well, I learned a, lo- a whole lot today. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a wonderful conversation with Katie Bittner, um, all about video games and not just video games, but everything underneath as well. Um, so thank you so much for your for joining us here today. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right, game over, folks. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. Insert coins now and follow the links in the episode description for more info and to follow up on today's episode. And don't forget to button mash the like and subscribe buttons to catch new episodes every two weeks. 
and give us a like and a follow on Instagram at Research Recasted. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications at McEwen University. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Dylan Cave and Brittany Eklund. Music, sound design, and editing are by Dylan Cave, with research, copy editing, and scripting by Brittany Eklund. Executive producers are Jason Malenko and Ray Barry. Thanks again for listening.